Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Mark Golston. Mark is a business advisor, consultant, speaker, trainer, coach, and mentor to CEOs and entrepreneurs. He's been a professor of psychiatry at UCLA's internationally renowned Neuropsychiatric Institute for 25 years, a crisis psychiatrist for 30 years, and has worked as an FBI and police hostage negotiation trainer. Mark is the author of several best-selling books, including Just Listen, Get Out of Your Way, which sold over 200,000 copies and is about to be re-released, and his most recent book, Talking to Crazy, which is going to be released in paperback, and it's called Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with the Irrational and Possible People in Your Life. He's also a contributing writer for a number of online media outlets, including the Harvard Business Review, Business Insider, the Huffington Post, and he frequently appears as a guest expert on several major TV news outlets. Thank you so much for coming on this show today, Dr. Golston. It's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. So I have a ton of questions for you. I'm super excited to have you here. I want to start off talking a little bit about self-defeating behaviors. What are self-defeating behaviors? And can you give us some examples? Well, self-defeating behaviors are things that we do to cope with uh, distress in in the uh, in the immediate moment, and they give us relief, they lessen the distress, but they tend to mess up our lives. Uh, I talk about a difference between stress and distress, and when you're stressed, you can still focus on your goals with difficulty, but if the stress gets too much, it crosses over into distress, and at that point, you wanna, you, your focus is relieving the distress and you don't really think about the consequences. So probably one of the most common uh, self-defeating behaviors is procrastination because nearly everybody procrastinates on something uh, that they should be doing and they should be doing sooner and they just don't do it. Uh, so you could be a great entrepreneur and be procrastinating and actually you know, improving your communication in your personal relationships, your dating relationships. Uh, uh, one of the challenges for entrepreneurs is they're not the best listeners to things that don't interest them. And in relationships, it's about relating. And relating is finding, uh, listening to people uh, and being interested in them. Uh, I was fortunate to have many mentors. They've all passed away. And my last mentor was a fellow named Warren Bennis, and if you look up his name, he's one of the top pioneers in the, in the field of leadership. And one of my favorite quotes from Warren was, boredom occurs when we fail to make the other person interesting. And a lot of people, uh, a self-defeating behavior is, you know, people only listen for what's interesting to them as opposed to what might be interesting to the other person. So it's almost like they have an agenda. Exactly. And in one of my other, I'm, I'm a man of many quotes, and one of my other favorite quotes comes from a, uh, from a British psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion, and he said, the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire. Because when you listen with memory, you have an old personal agenda that you're trying to plug people into, and when you listen with desire, you have a, a new or future personal agenda that you're trying to plug uh, the other person into. 
but you're not listening to their agenda. You're not listening to what matters to them. Uh, and this is also, I think, one of the reasons for relationships failing and people failing in business. So they're, they're not listening and essentially they're not connecting. Is that right? That's right. They're, they're not listening. They're not listening in order to understand the other person uh, and deeply understand them. I was going to ask, so how does someone do that? If they're doing that, they're sort of, when they're in a conversation, they have an agenda or I feel like that would lead towards maybe a, a tendency to control the conversation. Well, there's an article, maybe I can send you a link to it. And I think it's called, uh, uh, are you MIA? Meaning, are you missing an action? And then the subtitle is a 10 step algorithm for being present. And it actually helps people who are on the spectrum to show, demonstrate empathy. And I've used it with some uh, uh, people who are on the spectrum and they say, wow, this is amazing because my partner thinks I'm so empathic and I'm just following your steps. <laughs> and so, so, so I'll just give you some of the steps and then give you a link to the article. But the first step is you have to say to your, the first step is you have to have the intention to connect. So you, so if you're in, looking to be in a relationship or you're dating, uh, you, you have to go there saying to yourself, now don't try and control the conversation, don't try and sell, don't try and talk too much. You are there to connect to the other person. So you have to get that mindset and make that a priority. So that's the first step. The second step is be a first class noticer. And noticing is different than looking, watching, and seeing. When you're looking, watching, or seeing, you're passive. You're an observer. But when you're noticing, you're really connecting to what you're noticing. So like right now, I'm noticing that we're using Skype and I see this heart in the middle of my Skype screen. And I'm saying, is that a heart? It looks like two people kissing each other uh, in the middle of your, your little logo there. And so I'm focusing on that and then, and then I'm curious about that. I wonder what that's about. So when you're a first class noticer, uh, if you really want to get into this and it's astounding and this will work both in relationships and business, uh, what you want to do is you want to notice four things. You want to notice hyperbole such as awful, amazing, horrendous, uh, and you want to notice inflection. So when they raise their voice and they're talking more intently than uh, you want to notice that. You want to notice adjectives like, uh, let's see, need to do this quick, and you will, because that uh, uh, that uh, an adjective embellishes a noun, and you want to notice adverbs, which embellishes a verb, and so uh, when you notice hyperbole, inflection, adjectives, and adverbs, you're noticing things with an emotional charge in them. So as you're listening to the other person, note those things, notice them. When they finish what they're saying, be curious. This next step is be curious about those. I mean, like what's lying underneath that? When someone say, says the word horrendous or amazing, be curious. And then the next step is ask them about them. And you can even say, I couldn't help but notice, but what do you mean by horrendous? You know, so what we have is intention to connect, notice, be curious, 
ask, and then they're going to go into that, and they're going to open up more and more to you. And so the next step is to listen uh, as they're sharing that with you. And then the, uh, the final step, and you can get more steps on, on this article that I'll send you, is go deeper. So, uh, so when they talk about whatever they're talking about, go, say to them, say more about that. So you drill it and say more. So as they're talking about what was horrendous or amazing, and they talk further about it, you might say, uh, say more about the uh, whatever they talk about that has some emotion attached to it. But can you, in your mind's eye, can you get a sense that you're really going through the layers of the onion of connecting with someone? I, I sort of imagined when you talk about, well, there's a few things that came to my mind as you were talking about this stuff. One was, in our classes, we talk about when you're beginning to build a connection, you have to create some form of attraction. But a lot of that has to do with energy. And then we talk a lot about connection and building comfort. Somebody has to feel comfortable and accepted around you. And one of the things that I was picking up was when somebody's using hyperbole or inflection or adjectives or adverbs, you can feel that energy. And uh, it's almost like judo in the sense that you're allowing that energy to carry the conversation by encouraging it. Absolutely. In fact, in my recent books, which seems to seem to have done very well, my book Just Listen became the top book on listening in the world. And I spoke in Russia, in Moscow, for six hours to the Russian Federation on how to be better listeners and be more empathic. And the Russian title of the book is I Hear You Through and Through in the Russian edition. And, and that's about when you when you listen into people, they open up. And it's about engaging the energy that you're talking about, uh, as opposed to competing with it. And my most recent book is Talking to Crazy. And, and uh, that's about that when you open people up, if you're dealing with people who are agitated or irrational, it's about really going into that as opposed to avoiding it. And, uh, and there is a little bit of judo involved. But what you're really doing is you're enabling someone uh, who's getting a little bit off their chest to get a lot off their chest, but rather than taking it personally or, or, or taking it between the eyes, you're eliciting from them to talk more. I mean, you, you might even say, if you're in a relationship, to say, um, you know, in the past six months, where have I most frustrated, upset, or disappointed you? Now, I wouldn't, you know, you, know, you, you have to keep this in context. You know, I wouldn't say this uh, you know, just just lying out there. But if you if you're sensing that your relationship was going well and then it started to hit a roadblock, I think when you elicit from the other person, uh, and I call it fud crud. Since we've been dating, you know, I'm sensing kind of a shift in kind of our relating. And so, what have I done or failed to do that frustrated you, upset you, or disappointed you? Give me an example of each. And you'll and what'll happen is the person shares that and you're leaning into it, uh, and you're not going to be defensive because you're guiding it, you're going to actually see them lighten up, and in a number of cases, they're going to start to tear up. They're going to start to cry because they feel relief because they were feeling those things, and they didn't know how to bring it up effectively. Or when they brought it up, uh, they did it in such a way that you got defensive. You said, hey, hey, calm down. You're getting emotional. Well, uh, that's uh, that's not the <laughs> best way to win over someone you're developing a relationship with. 
That makes a ton of sense to me. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important for someone to feel like they can express themselves uh, when you're in a relationship with them? Well, here's something, uh, if you haven't heard it, I hope you'll uh, find interesting and your listeners will also. One of the reasons, at least traditionally, that men die before women is that when men get stressed and then distressed, and when women feel the same, their cortisol goes up. So when your stress or distress is high, cortisol goes up. Now, the way most men deal with elevated cortisol and distress is they often withdraw, they pull away, they plan an alternate approach to solve the problem, and then they come back and they, you know, and they sort of uh, take charge. You know, it's not unlike uh, how athletes are, you know, after a bad quarter, uh, and they come back. And so what happens is they deal with the stress through mastery, but their cortisol stays pretty high. Whereas what happens is when women feel distressed or or when feminine energy feels distressed, uh, they seek to get a surge of oxytocin. So oxytocin is what underlies bonding and intimacy. And so what happens is women went to deal or feminine energy often wants to not just be heard and feel understood they want to feel felt and so women when women feel felt their their cortisol goes down their oxytocin goes up they bond with you they start to feel grateful towards you they calm down and they come up with their own advice so there's a piece of advice i've been giving people uh, called mediate catharsis and what mediated catharsis is is when you say to the other person or you give them the words that are really ugly that they might be feeling towards you. And they wouldn't say to you because you'd get all defensive. If you give them the words and tell them to say them to you, and you don't get defensive because you're actually in charge of the conversation, you're facilitating it without being controlling, what'll happen is, well, I'll give you an example. So let's say you're, you, you're a male and you like to approach problematic things by problem solving and you get very anxious when things get emotional and when you get into an argument with someone who's coming from the female energy often the female energy will say don't give me solutions don't give me advice you're so cold you're so clueless which of course is just going to make you more defensive but to apply the mediated catharsis approach what you'd say to your girlfriend or your wife if they have coming from the feminine energy. Uh, And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, We'll call them Jack and Joan. So if you're Jack, what you might say to Joan is uh, in the middle of an argument, and here's the tone. Joan, Joan, uh, I got something to try. Uh, It could make this thing better. And if it doesn't work, we'll just go back to arguing. Uh, Just play along with me. So the tone is that kind of tone. Uh, not controlling, but just sort of, hey, hey, hey I think I, I get a way out of this. And she's going to go, huh? Uh, and then look her straight in the eye. And what's interesting is when you're doing this, it's easy to look people in the eye. And she's going to go, what? And you look her straight in the eye and you say, yeah, yeah, j- just say the following uh, to me and you just play along with me and let's see where it goes. And we can go always go back to arguing, but but I think this might help. And then you look in Joan's eye, uh, your uh, Jack. And you say, uh, say this to me, Jack, 
when we get into an argument and you try to make it better by giving me a solution or telling me to calm down, you actually make it worse. You make me want to rip my hair out and there you are thinking that you're helping the situation and you're making it worse. You come off as really clueless and controlling and scared and if you think that's going to win me over, you're out of your ever-loving mind. So could you say that to me, John? You see it? And, and you're mediating her doing that. Uh, and, and, and then what will happen, since you're not on the defensive because you're, you're sort of in charge of it, as she says it, uh, you're actually going gonna, gonna to notice her feeling some relief. And you might even take that opportunity to say, you know, while we're on this subject, Tell me about a time when I, what was the worst thing I've done so far in our relationship? What was the absolute worst thing I've done that made you think, what am I doing with you? And then as she starts to speak that out, you don't get defensive. And you use those, uh, what I told you earlier, you know, say more about that. As she starts to use hyperbole, inflection, adjectives, or adverbs, say, say more about that. And then, and you watch her, she's going to actually start to, get a little giddy or cry because she's feeling relief and since you're not defensive and you're actually noticing this is really helping the relationship what you what you can then say is boy that was messed up wow i'm, I'm sure i did that and then you might want to say to her uh, look help me out talk to me like i'm five years old what is something that i must always do and what is something that I must never do so that you don't go back to that? But can you see this in your mind's eye playing out? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating because, I mean, it's through language that we structure our relationships, right? And, and essentially you're using, you're using language in order to structure chaos to a certain extent, from, at least from my perspective, like this sort of set of, or like this range of emotions and you're trying to figure out how do you sort of work through it and what you're doing is you're giving me or you're giving the people who are listening to this a, a way to structure that chaos and work through it. Yeah, is there anything else you want to add onto that? I think it's super helpful. Well, I'm going to apply my, <laughs> apply my noticing with you. I'm going to say, okay, so what I'm noticing and then tell me if this changes our conversation qualitatively. So what I'm noticing is you're taking this in you're making sense of it. You're seeing the utility of it. You see how it's applicable. You're maybe even hoping that as listeners listen in, that you're thinking, this is actually valuable information for our listeners. This is a good podcast. So is any of that true? Yeah, it's absolutely true. And one of the things you do very, I mean, you wrote a book on listening. One of the things you do very well is you, you listen, you pick up patterns. And one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking is there's a level of self-awareness that comes with that, right? And you're able to sort of recognize certain things that are happening and name them and utilize that information in a way where I think a lot of people just don't have that level of awareness. So how, how do, if someone doesn't have that awareness, how do they develop it? Well, that, that's a good question. Uh, I'm actually working on something. It's a way to talk yourself and talk other people's out of distress. And one of the ways to do it, so this is one of the ways that I talk myself out of distress, 
because you know I'm, I'm a human being and when I get distressed, I'm likely to do something silly or stupid to cope with it. Really quickly, can you just sort of explain distress? Because you, you went over it quickly and I want to make sure that if somebody's listening, they have a clear idea of what you're talking about. Okay, so stress is when you're under stress, to me, what stress is, is that you're moving along towards a future uh, and you're in flow if your goal is clear and if your thoughts, feelings, and actions are aligned with it. So when everything is lined up and you actually feel like you're moving smoothly towards whatever your goal or objective is, you're in a state of flow. But then when you hit a bump in the road, you get a rejection, you, you hit an obstacle, it's, uh, it stops the flow. Uh, and then what happens is there's a ripple effect all the way through the th your three-part mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. And what happens is the bigger the obstacle, the more you're tickling at something in your middle emotional brain called your amygdala. And the amygdala is like the point guard inside your brain. It's in your emotional mammalian middle brain. And so when you run into an obstacle that's really big, uh, it, it causes your amygdala to heat up and possibly do what's called an amygdala hijack, where it suddenly pushes you into sort of your pre-wired fight-or-flight survival mode. And when, when your amygdala gets uh, overstimulated and does that, you no longer can be present in the situation that you're in. So when you're under stress, uh, even though your amygdala may be uh, bubbling a little bit, you can still stay focused and access your prefrontal cortex and really evaluate the situation in front of you. But when the stress or the obstacle becomes really big, and what happens is that your, uh, uh, let's say your future is suddenly taken away from you. Let's say uh, someone breaks up with you. Uh, let's say your company closes down and everyone's laid off. Uh, let's say you develop a, a serious illness, what happens is uh, uh, that then pushes you to feeling distress. So distress and amyg amygdala hijack are intimately related. And so it's at that point when you feel distressed and you're not able to access your uh, prefrontal cortex and think through situations that's when you really need to be able to calm yourself down or calm another person down. And so one of the ways to do that, one of the ways that I do it, and I'm a great believer in mentors, I've had seven mentors, they've all passed away and they changed my life, and they made my life, and I mentor about 35 people at various frequencies and I love doing that. Uh, but what, I, what happens is if I get distressed, I call upon what I call the dead mentor society in my mind, and I imagine them asking me these questions. And it's all done, uh, it's all done smoothly, uh, so, uh, so I've internalized it. But, uh, so for instance, if I was really blowing this podcast, and you can tell me whether I did afterwards, but if I really, uh, because I often get off on tangents, and I can sometimes never come back from them, uh, if I was doing that, you did, you afterwards, great. Uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you. So uh, if, uh, uh, but if I was blowing it afterwards, I would have a tendency to really beat up on myself. I would say, you know, 
Mark, you know, you've done 200 podcasts. When are you going to get your act together? I mean, you got off on tangents and you lost the point of what you were talking about. You know, and Chris was so decent that, uh, you know, he allowed you to do that. But God, when are you going to learn to finish a story? <laughs> and so in the past, I would, again, it's not so distressing that I'm going to go out and you know, get drunk and do something uh, really destructive. But in the past, I would beat up on myself. And so I can call upon any of my dead mentors. And in my mind, they go through these questions. Mark. And they say it in this kind of loving but firm. Mark, what happened? Oh, I did it again. I can't believe I did it. And then, then they'll say, okay, Mark, uh, what'd you think when that happened? God, am I ever going to learn how to do these things correctly? I mean, I get away with so much, but I'm all over the place. Okay, Mark, what'd you feel about it? Well, I feel like, Sometimes I feel like I'm advising people how to overcome their self-defeating behaviors, and I've made no progress. And then the next question is, okay, Mark, uh, what does it make you want to do? So, it's, so the first thing is what happened? What did you think when it happened? Uh, what did you feel when it happened? What does it make you want to do? Oh, maybe I should just stop these podcasts. I don't even know why I'm doing them. Maybe, maybe it's just an ego trip. I don't know. And then the, And then the... Next question is, I hear my dead mentor saying to me, Mark, what would be a better thing to do? And here's where I get a little emotional. And I'd say, well, the better thing to do is thinking of you and how you were in my life and how you cared about me, how you saw potential in me that I didn't, how you stayed with me. And, and I'm just realizing, God, I messed up uh, this podcast, but I was just thinking of you you know, my mentor, and I miss you. And you were such a good guy in my life. You know, and then the final step would be uh, to remind myself, if I haven't done it, remind myself to contact their next of kin and say, you know, I was just thinking about your dad. I was just thinking about your husband. And what a difference he made in my life. And uh, I just want to get back to you and just, just tell you that. And if I go through those six steps, I'll tell you, I don't even remember what I did wrong. What is happening in each of these six steps? Like, why, why does it work? Because that, that was one of my questions was going to be, like, how do you walk yourself out of distress? Well, with each of these things, first of all, I'm engaging another person who I know is more forgiving of me than I am, who believes in me more than I do sometimes. So when I think of those mentors, any of those mentors... I get a burst of oxytocin. It's like, you know, so, so I'm not alone there. And, and I'm one of these people, uh, you know, I, I really, I'm almost envious of people who can make these positive self-statements, like I, I'm going to be, you know, uh, I really deserve to be happy. It's never worked with me because at my core, I'm not an I, I'm a we. If I say to myself today, uh, I'm a really good person and I deserve to be successful and happy. It doesn't work for me, but if I think of any of my dead mentors, uh, and, and there's, a, <laughs> there's a term I give them now, which is their quick way of helping me out of distress, so I don't necessarily have to go through all the steps I showed you. I can call up any of the mentors in my mind, because they're all dead, and I'll say, oh, Warren, I can't believe I did it again. 
and what he says to me in this voice in my mind, Mark, put a sock in it. <laughs> and, that sig- and, that, and that signal is, Mark, you know, you keep beating up on yourself. Uh, you know that your podcast things go well because you're spontaneous. You're not polished. Uh, you're not salesy. And so people actually like that. So the people who are going to forgive you and like it are going to forgive you and like it. And the other people who want, you know, something that is really scripted and polished, you're never going to win them over. And what Wong would say to me, and, and Mark, uh, that's okay, because I never won them over either, because I was tangential too. So, uh, so the first step in thinking of someone who cares about you or cared about you if they've deceased, uh, it, it made me feel less alone in my, my feeling idiotic. So as soon as I felt less alone and I got a little taste of oxytocin, I started to calm down. And then those questions actually walked me from my middle emotional brain up into my prefrontal cortex. So the, when, when he says, what happened in my mind, and I explain what happened, specifically, the more that I can explain what happened to that, that person, the more I re-experience having done it, but I'm re-experiencing it with a loving, forgiving person who believes in me. So, I'm, so instead of beating up on myself, I'm just sharing the story of feeling foolish with someone who cared about me or cares about me if, uh, if they were alive. And so just doing that and sharing the story and refeeling it, I'm starting to feel better. And then when he said, then he would say, so what do you think when that happened? A lot of people, especially male energy, they often start with what they think after something. Sometimes female energy starts with what they feel. But, uh, but male energy, if he says, so what do you think when that happened? I'm then sharing the way a lot of men process things. You've been processing this whole podcast. <laughs> well, is that a, you're saying, well, Mark, is that a pattern? Can we follow these steps? Let's see if we can finish that. But let's get back to this other thing you talked about. So you're really trying to you know, stay with me on this little journey. Uh, and so uh, when, when I hear that uh, mentor saying, uh, what, what did you think? I'm using some of that male processing energy. And then when he says, what did you feel? Uh, there's actually uh, research, especially out of UCLA by Matthew Lieberman, that said when you can express your emotions in, in the accurate words, in other words, don't vent, but when you express what you're feeling underneath it all, like, oh, I felt foolish. I felt silly. I felt like I'm never gonna learn how to fix this thing. And so when you can, uh, uh, if, if that mentor was to say to me, so what'd you feel? And I express those things, uh, doing that calms amygdala activation by a third. So that calms me down even more. And then, uh, but the icing on the cake, the tipping point is when he says, so what does it make you uh, want to do? And that would be my impulse. That would be my acting out. Well, I'm going to cancel all the podcasts that I have scheduled for the rest of the week because I'm not a fit guest for any podcast. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then as I express that out, get that out, that's the kind of use your words they used to, they used to try to teach little boys in preschool that never worked. You know, use your words. 
So by using my words, saying what the impulse is, I get that out. And then when I imagine that mentor smiling at me in a loving way, uh, in just the right key, when he says, what would be a better thing to do? Um, you know, I, I'm there just uh, having it all off my chest, out of harm's way. I'm not going to do anything stupid. And then I end up, you know, missing the guy. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I think sometimes emotions or thought patterns have a tendency to get trapped inside us and sort of become like washing machines and they turn over and flip over and just sort of recycle over and over and over. And this and this gives a way to take that energy and, and move it somewhere. And a lot of different ideas came to mind. The idea of understanding what happened, asking yourself what happened and sort of trying to articulate what is it that's bothering you uh, next, beginning to sort of think about why it's bothering me, try to name the feelings. And then he said, what do you want to do? And, and I like that because it creates some form of movement with the energy. And I thought about um, people who've come back from war who've got into art as a form of expression or surfing or just like some type of activity, um, but use this these mentors almost as sort of like a lens, right? And in acting, they talk about using like animals for example like if if somebody people get stuck in sort of their their way of being but they try to figure out well how do i like how would an acting how would a lion behave how would a lion move and so it sort of allows people to move towards something otherwise they end up in this sort of washing machine of as i'm describing now of like sort of behaviors and emotions but i'm using these mentors as this lens that you're allowing yourself to sort of move towards something. And then you actually pick something actionable, which is like reach out to them and, and build that connection. But the, sort of with the process, the way I'm hearing it leads is to this point of like self-acceptance, right? You're beating yourself up because you're not accepting something that's happening. You're upset, you're angry, you're frustrated. You're, you're dealing with perfectionism, which is, I know a lot of people who are listening to this go through the same things. And and you're moving, you've like found this pattern that somebody can use to move towards acceptance of themselves. And I, and I think that, that's so important. And there's a lot of people who are listening to this who struggle with this. It's not a lot of people. Every person who's listening to this struggles with this at moments. Some people are better at not beating themselves up compared to other people. What's interesting, and uh, I'm not against mindfulness, but I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I think it's great if it calms you down so that you don't do something destructive. But a lot of these practices, you still it still keeps you 
alone. You do this on your own. You calm yourself down so that you can speak rationally. Uh, there's a term that I have come up with instead of mindfulness, and it's called weefulness, W-E-fulness. So what I do when I'm distressed is I conjure up you know, the memory of a mentor, and we talk me through it. And, and see, and that feels much more real than going through the pros and cons and the analytic thing. And it's kind of like what you were saying, uh, that sometimes we get into our thought processes, and maybe it helps us step away from doing something stupid, but it doesn't necessarily, it helps us cope, but it doesn't necessarily heal something that's underlying. Because thought doesn't heal anything. Thought solves things. What heals is a feeling experience. And what heals, I believe, is an interpersonal feeling experience. And so weefulness, uh, maybe that'll be my next book, weefulness, is, is being able to conjure up the people that cared about you in your life and in your mind. Let them talk you through it feel grateful towards them if they made a big difference in your life like some of the people who probably say one actually saved my life it changed my life you know so i was a suicide expert for 25 years and none of them killed themselves but i think what started it was i don't know if i was suicidal but i was really down and a low point in med school in fact i dropped out of medical school twice and finished and the school wanted to kick me out. I wasn't, I wasn't failing anything, but the dean of students stepped in and he went to bat for me against the entire school. He basically said, this, th there's something good in this kid. And he has goodness in him and we don't grade that in med school. And, and he stood up for me and I got a second leave of absence, you know, when the medical school wanted to just uh, say, you know, we're done with him. And it just changed everything. And I think that's why I became a suicide specialist, because that dean of students reached into me when, you know, at my core, I was this we, and I was the weaker part of the we. And I was probably going down for the count. And he just stepped in and said, you know, yeah, uh, you're too good not to save. I see a future for you that you don't. The world needs you. And you're going to let me help you. And then he went to bat for me. So that changed everything. Oftentimes when I'm, I find that somebody is depressed, I, I sense some level of hopelessness. And what was going on in your life at that time? Well, first off, I guess, do you, do you agree with that? Did you feel hopeless at that time? And if so, what was going on? And then how did you walk yourself out of it? Because, it, I mean, it's awesome to ha that you had a mentor that was able to support you. Was that enough to walk you out of it? Or was there other things that were involved that, allowed you to walk yourself out of it, at least for that specific example? Well, I wrote an article last week on Medium called Why People Kill Themselves, It's Not Depression. And it's gone viral. It's had 490,000 views, yeah, 75,000 reads. And I'm going to be doing presentations on this now. And what I talked about, if you read the article, is uh, I, I, I believe that people kill themselves, not from depression, which contributes to it, but from despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, it means feeling unpaired with all the reasons to live in life. 
So if you feel unpaired with the future, you feel hopeless. If you feel that you can't get yourself out of it, you feel helpless, powerless. And then you can start to feel useless, worthless, meaningless. And when you reach a point, everything feels pointless. And when you feel unpaired with all those reasons to live, you pair with death to take the pain away because you can't stand the pain. It's not that you want to die, it's you just can't stand the pain. And so what happened is I think I felt a lot of those. And in the meeting I had with the dean of students, uh, and I, I'm not a religious person, people say, well, you're, you may not be religious, Mark, but you're very spiritual. But I feel a miracle happened because when, when I met with him and I, he told me that the school basically wanted to kick me out, uh, he said, oh, I got a letter from the dean of the whole school saying that he talked with you and you'd agreed on another career and he's asking the promotions committee uh, that you be asked to withdraw. And I remember saying to him, I don't remember saying I would choose another career and he, and he laughed and chuckled in a, in a loving way. He said, Mark, I, I knew you didn't agree to that. You're too confused to be clear about anything. And I, when I said, what does this mean, this letter? Uh, that he had me read from the, the head of the whole school. He said, you've been, you've been kicked out. And it was just like a gunshot wound. I, I, uh, I just, you know, it's like my head went down and I felt something wet on my cheekbones and I thought I was bleeding. And I kept touching them. I, I thought I was bleeding, but it was tears. And so I kind of looked back, it's almost like a resurrection. And so at that point, when you're broken down and you know, I came from a background that said you're only worth something if you can produce something. And so if uh, at that moment, imagine you're broken down and you feel all those lesses, hopeless, helpless, all those things, useless, worthless. And when someone reaches in who doesn't have to and says, you know, Mark, uh, you didn't screw up. Uh, you're, you passed everything, but you are screwed up. But if you get unscrewed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. And I start crying, like, you know, I don't understand you know, this kindness. And then he says, and even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do something with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you, Mark, because you have goodness in you. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you won't know it till you're 35. Uh, and you deserve to be on this planet. And look at me. And then he pointed his finger at me, and my eyes are just crying. And he says, you're going to let me help you. And then he arranged an appeal. You know, then, then apparently uh, the promotions com committee saw something in me that he saw. But that changed everything. So that's a real long answer, but hopefully there's a pony in there somewhere. I think there definitely is. What, what did you learn from that experience that you've you've taken through the rest of your life so what i learned is that we um and in the next iteration because i'm really going granular with this uh feeling unpaired in the world so the next iteration that i'm going to be talking about is so what i realize is that at the core of our being we are paired life is paired so in D dna is uh, two strands and what happens is when you feel one of the strands is ripped away from you, you know, that future is ripped away from you and 
you reach inside and you can't handle it, you can imagine one DNA strand starting to collapse. And before it hits the ground and all the nucleotides break up, uh, the strand kills itself. And I think that's what happens with people, is that it's like when all these reasons to live are stripped away, you start to fall apart and you, uh, you are unpaired with a reason to live. But when someone steps in and unconditionally uh, believes in you, loves you, sees goodness in you, and, and they come in, it's like an empathy repair. They step in and suddenly, you know, you're, uh, you're double stranded again. And so one of the ways that I, I functioned as a suicide specialist and I think added to my being effective is I didn't give people treatments or solutions or advice. I find uh, I, I discovered a way of listening into their eyes. And all I listened for was hurt, hurt, fear, anger, pain, guilt, and shame. And when I, and that, and, and I only looked into their eyes wanting to alleviate any of those. There was no other agenda I had. And I didn't want to solve it. What I wanted to do was keep them company there. So when I look into people's eyes, I actually can almost picture this DNA strand is falling. Uh, and as they start to share with me which of those things they feel, you know, do you feel hurt? Do you feel fear? Do you feel anger? Do you feel pain, guilt, shame? Which of those or all of those? And again, as they express the word, I feel shame then I would say, yes, yeah, say more about that. Tell me about that. And as they begin to speak it, and I'm not giving them solutions, I'm, I'm, I'm pairing with them. I'm doing a correction, you know, in the broken part uh, of what I call the dark night of the soul. It's like shining a flashlight into the dark night of the soul. And so can you picture this in your mind's eye? Yeah, I definitely can. I think, I mean, earlier we were talking about this process you had for accepting yourself. And what I'm hearing now is you're talking about how to make somebody else feel accepted. Totally. Totally. So I'm, I'm just paying forward um, what the uh, what the dean of students did for me. <clears throat> Something I, I you know, I'm glad I'm glad you stuck it through this podcast so far. But anybody else who's listening, uh, I'm going to suggest something. Go to YouTube and do a search for Ryan's hallucination, Ryan's hallucination on YouTube. And that comes from the movie Gravity. And in the movie Gravity, Sandra Bullock is an astronaut. George Clooney's her mentor. And what happens is, uh, if you use my analogy of DNA, uh, Sandra Bullock has a child who dies. And so she runs away from it. She actually runs away from the Earth and becomes an astronaut. But she's traumatized by that. But as long as she can keep busy, she's doing okay. And she has a mentor named George Clooney, uh, a character. And so what happens is there's a big accident in space. Everybody's killed. And George Clooney uh, is literally uh, tethered to Sandra Bullock. And there's a scene which he says, you know, we're both going to die. And, and, and you can see the fear in her mind that even though she didn't know what to do about the accident, she felt she was okay as long as she had George Clooney. But then when he cuts her loose and he goes and dies, the rest of the movie is she goes into free fall and she's talking to us, the audience. We're the fourth wall. 
And then there's a scene that's Ryan's hallucination where she's at a point where she just wants to die. She's in the space capsule and she just wants to die and she hallucinates George Clooney coming back into the capsule. And when he comes in, I mean, if you use my analogy and you can actually see, she, she, she's, she's there in the capsule wanting to die and she's like, she's like a collapsed piece of that single stranded DNA and he comes in and she kind of gets surprised. Now she's hallucinated exactly what she needs to empathically fit with her. So he's playful, he's loving, he's firm, he, he walks her through what she needs to do. Uh, he goes into the pain of her losing a child and she gets emotional. Uh, and it's like, I think, a two-minute segment. Uh, and then that's the turning point in the film. So that's what my dean of students did with me and for me. And that's who I was when I was a suicide specialist for 20 years. I was George Clooney. In a lot of ways, you still are, right? So... Well, I'm doing I'm doing it one to many now. So I, I've actually retired as a, a, a clinical doctor. Uh, and so I'm now presenting programs on how other people can do this with the people in their lives. But even coaching as an entrepreneur, and we see this all with entrepreneurs or even with your programs in mass, this idea, we see it all the time in literature, right? Whether it's religious texts or just literature in general of, of the idea that the shepherd or or the mentor or... Uh, the hero's journey, right? He goes out and finds somebody to mentor them through life's challenges or problems. A few things came to my mind. One is that as we get older, we just end up acquiring a lot of baggage and, and it definitely helps to have people or someone uh, or something to sort of guide us, right? And um, it's awesome that you you found a person in your life and you've also been able to be that person. I know when we coach, uh, we end up being that person for for a lot of people and you have over the years as well how does somebody if they're trying to figure out how to go out and develop these relationships or find that mentor how do they do that i mean sometimes you just have to pay someone to uh to mentor because they're busy and they have time and then sometimes this comes through sort of these emotional connections like you had with uh the dean of students when you were in medical school how does somebody build these deep relationships or get them to care about them get other people to care about them well, see, what you want to find is someone who not only cares about you developing your expertise, but someone who wants to, you, who cares about you developing as a person. And what you want to find <clears throat> are people in which something like that has happened to them. So, I, I, you know, I, I took that leave of a second year off, and then I came back, and not only did I go straight through the rest of the medical school, I went through my psychiatric residency. And I went 12 years without taking a sick, sick day because I was afraid that if I took a day off for being sick, I'd drop out of my career again because I was kind of spooked. And so what happened is I then met with the dean of students about 10 years later. I said, why did you go out of your way? I mean, he stood up for me against the medical school. And he said, well, because someone did it for me 30 years ago. And it was interesting. He, I, said, I said, why did they give me a, another year off when they were going to lose money because the medical schools lose money when someone takes a year off. And what happened is I, uh, I stood up to the, the head of the promotions committee who was a doctor that everybody hated. And, and he started grilling me, you know, so, so, so my dean of students arranged an appeal 
and the other doctors in the room, heads of hospitals, and the dean of students was only an anatomy instructor. So he arranged the appeal, and the head of the committee was the surgeon who everybody couldn't stand. And so he started grilling me and grilling me and grilling me. So why should we let you be a, become a doctor? I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like you can make up your mind. You drop in, you drop out. Why don't we just cut our losses? And he was just grilling me. And there was a point at which he said, you know, so why should we give you another chance? And uh, I said, well, it hasn't been the best year. I, my dad had colon cancer. I uh, was married for a short while. And my wife cut her losses with me. I had thyroid disease and they had to pump me up with different meds. And then I got liver problems. And, and he says, and he says, and so, and so. And I, and I looked at him and I said, I don't even, I don't even know if those are legitimate excuses. And then he just glared at me and I looked into his eyes. It was like David and Goliath. And I, and I looked at him and I said, and so I'd like to plead insanity and throw myself on the mercy of a room of doctors. And he was this big overweight guy who smoked cigars. He put his cigar up, twisted his chair around and wouldn't look at me. And then the dean of students dismissed me and said, Mark, well, you know, we got to figure this out, go outside. And so I went and sat in a stairwell. Uh, and about 30 minutes later, the dean of students came out. He put his arm around me and he said, Mark, take a year take five years, you will always be welcome back in our medical school. And so when I met with him 10 years later, I said, why did they give me another you know, year of leave of absence? Because they lost money on that. And he looked at me and he said, nobody had ever been able to shut that guy down the way you did. And when you did what you did, and he turned his chair around, we, uh, the rest of us looked at each other and said with our eyes, we can't lose this kid. <laughs> So that's sort of, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place, but you sort of get the idea. Yeah, it's, it's a great story. There's something that, that we talked about earlier. You, you talked a little bit about male and female energy, right? And so I, I tend to find that a lot of our clients are either on one side of a spectrum where they are trying to figure out how to express themselves and their masculinity. And then on the other side of the spectrum, we have guys who come off so traditionally alpha, like as a stereotype that they have trouble connecting with anybody. And it's the people who are are more fully integrated that they end up in relationships pretty quickly and are able to work through all the challenges and things that come up in their relationships. And you were talking a little bit about masculine and feminine energy. And one of the things that that we've been talking, correct me if I'm wrong, we've talked a little bit about sort of acceptance and you're talking about making yourself vulnerable uh, before this, this person um, who is in a position of power and sort of building alliance with your uh, dean of Sir students and some of the other people in the room. But when I think about our clients that are on one side of the spectrum or the other side of the spectrum, they tend to resent the other sort of other side, right? So the guys who are having trouble expressing their masculinity or asserting themselves um, or expressing themselves in general, they're resenting sort of the stronger male um male models. And then the guys who are coming off as really traditionally sort of alpha, really strong, are resenting the other guys as weak. And I feel like healthy, integrated people have some of all of that. And uh, they have the ability to express themselves and to assert themselves when they need to. And they have the ability to make themselves vulnerable when when they need to and and ask for help and accept help. And one of the things that your mentor said was that you're going to take my help. 
sort of asserted himself there. And I know there's a lot of guys, including myself, there's times in my life where I just didn't want to help. Oh, if, if, if he had said, call me if I can help you, I never would have called him. Exactly. So he stepped in. But the, but the point is he stepped in forcefully, uh, basically it, it, what it turned out at his own expense, because I, I'll tell you, if you, if you see, you don't need someone else's permission. If you see they are floundering and they're failing and you're doing it not to control them, but because you see that they're, uh, that they're falling and you just step in. And you say something like that, you, you know, uh, you're going to let me help you because uh, you're not doing very well and you're about to blow me off. And then after you blow me off, you're just going to pull away and be in your apartment and you're going to feel relief because you didn't like this intense conversation. But I don't need your permission to help you because you can't help yourself right now. Uh, now, you can fire me and tell me to, to get out of your effing life uh, unless and until you do that. I'm in your life. And I'm going to get you through this as best I can. You got a problem with that? I'll tell you, when he said that to me, you're going to let me help you. I remember I couldn't look him in the eye because it was too intimate. And I lifted my left hand. And I remember saying, I think I'd like that. He wasn't being controlling. He was just reaching in. And a lot of times, I, I think I've been somewhat effective with people is because I'm a truth sayer. So when I see something, and, and I focus on the person's future, their future hurt, and I can see a devastating event down the road in front of them. And when I see that they're not going to be able to handle it, I don't bully them, but I'll be, I'll be lovingly formidable. And what happens is they react the same way that I did, uh, you know, and I can call them on that. I'll, I'll, you know, I remember calling on someone, I'll say, look, you don't have the luxury of, of some of this bravado crap that you're pulling on me. And I've even, and I say lovingly now to a lot of the people that I mentor, what I do, what my dead mentors say to me, I'll say, could you put a sock in it? You know, you're, you're, you're having a hard time. You don't have a way out of it. The people in your life are, are you know, telling you either what you want to hear or they're avoiding you. And, you know, and it's not getting any better. So why don't we just cut the crap and see if we can fix this together? Yeah, it, it's awesome. There's, I feel like there's a lot of, there's this movement in society where a lot of people feel like masculine energy is, or what you're describing as masculine energy is bad. And there's a lot of guys who think that feminine energy is weak or it, it's bad. But but I, I think the reality is like, um, we need both and it's okay to have both. And if you are able to express yourself and assert yourself and, and, and all, when it's appropriate and also make yourself vulnerable and ask for help, you'll end up building stronger connections and being healthier because we all do need help from time to time and there's also times we all need to stand up for ourselves and stand up for other people here's a good in, here's a good intervention you can use with people with who, who are using the masculine energy kind of uh, facade let them punch themselves out you know because i don't take on someone when they're punching themselves out and i pause and then often what i'll do especially when they've been really feisty is i'll pause for a couple seconds because then they get, they'll go, what, what, you know, so uh, let them punch themselves out. They're expecting you to escalate with them. And then I'll very calmly uh, and firmly sort of say, um, look, here's the deal. All the stuff you've been talking about is irrelevant 
what it comes down to is you're not open to help and you can't help yourself right now. All this masculine stuff is just a big thing where you're saying, I'm not open to help, but you can't help yourself or else we wouldn't be having this conversation. So can we just sort of cut the crap and see if we can figure this thing out? Yeah, and I, I can see how this could be really useful just in a lot of really difficult conversations. I know you're an expert in that subject. We talked a lot about listening. We talked about masculinity and femininity, a lot of different topics. I know that you're also short on time, but hopefully we can get you back. So for now, we'll kind of wrap this up. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Mark, we're going to post some links on our website in the description of this podcast so you can learn about him more easily. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Oh, thank you. And uh, you know, thank you for giving me uh, a big enough leash to uh, hopefully stay on the podcast, but uh, hopefully also add some nuggets here and there. Thanks a lot. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.